When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hey everyone, I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Join us as we unveil our new music podcast, Rivals. It's a look back at famous music rivalries of the past. Every week, Jordan and I will explore a new rivalry, delving into all the dirty details about our beloved musical icons who just can't seem to get along with their fellow legends. And then we'll debate each other about who deserves to have the upper hand in these classic conflicts. You'll remember the biggest beast from music history and hopefully become aware of some you didn't know. Join us on Rivals, a new podcast from iHeartRadio debuting on February 26th. Listen and follow on the the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. This is Molly. Molly, we've got to start off this podcast episode with a shout out to some very cool fans of ours that we met recently. True. Uh, we met Lindsay and Doug, who are in Atlanta, our hometown, uh, right now performing in the production of Looking Glass Alice, which is based in Chicago. And we went to see it and it was awesome. Yes. We both absolutely adored it. Yes, Lindsay and Doug, incredibly talented folks, and we were very excited to get to see them perform. And Looking Glass Alice, as you might guess, is loosely based on Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. And Molly and I ran across a really interesting article in Smithsonian Magazine discussing Lewis Carroll and his relationship to the real-life Alice. And by Lewis Carroll, I do mean the real-life Reverend Charles Ludwig Dodgson. Yes. That's right, Kristen. But for, for sake of easiness, let's just call him Lewis Carroll for the rest of this brief discussion of him because. Because Reverend Charles Ludwig Dodgson. <laughs> it's hard is to say. Quite a lot. <laughs> okay. So in 1865, Kristen, as you know, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was published. Mm -hmm. An immediate hit. Um, Lewis Carroll was pretty well known in his lifetime as being, you know, this Victorian bachelor who wrote this book. He had great relationships with children. Uh, in 1932, he was honored uh, by Columbia University. The real Alice Liddell, who he made up the story for, traveled to New York City to get the award. She was honored for awaking with her girlhood's charm, the ingenious fancy of a mathematician familiar with imaginary quantities, stirring him to reveal his complete understanding of the heart of a child. And I think that's a, a really, you know, well put way of why people still love Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. because it is this heart of a child going through this weird funky world that nothing seems quite right. But, I mean, nothing seems quite right when you are that age, I think. And not only is it an enduring book for children, but it's also something that adults read as well and enjoy. Um, but there's also this darker side to Lewis Carroll and his relationship with Alice, because as this article in Smithsonian explains, and many other scholars have gone back and, and looked at this as well, uh, but they've called into question this relationship between Dodgson and the real Alice Liddell. 
Right. Uh, as the article puts it, that, that Columbia University accolade was pretty much the last time that the book was viewed without a lot of sexual confusion because the very next year, there was a writer named A.M.E. Goldschmidt who um, wrote an essay called Alice in Wonderland Psychoanalyzed. And the whole thing is about how Lewis Carroll had this sexual desire for Alice, that the book is just rampant with all this hidden pedophilia, that, you know, every single thing that Alice does is somehow a symbol of repressed sexuality. And there's some evidence, according to Smithsonian, that this was supposed to be a parody mm-hmm. of the psychoanalyst, you know, kind of vogue that was going on at the point. But for whatever reason, these kind of um, viewpoints stuck. Well, and there's one... Uh- piece of evidence that some will point to to say that Dodgson had some kind of sexual obsession with Alice. And it's this photograph that he took of her where she's dressed up like a beggar and she is partially nude. Although Smithsonian also points out that Dodgson took a ton of photographs throughout his life, over 3,000 photographs, and about half of them are of children. And then about 30 of those pictures, are the kids are depicted nude or semi-nude. But then the magazine explains, uh, you know, as all of our red flags are going up saying, whoa, Lewis Carroll, <laughs> child pornographer. Um, they, he also, the, the magazine also points out that in the Victorian era, those kind of nude depictions of children were not uncommon at all. Right. They were seen as a portrayal of innocence, portrayal mm-hmm. of, you know, angelic art, that this was a time in a child's life to preserve. And so, you know, they make a big point of saying this was not out of the norm. Uh, the, the Liddells by all account love the photograph that he took of Alice, but there was some sort of snag with the family. Mm-hmm. You know, he, um, took many children, not just the Liddell children, Al, and he would, he had no children of his own, so he'd take them out for picnics, he would take them rowing on boats. He was sort seen, of an adopted uncle. Yeah, he was seen as a, f- a fun, friendly uncle, but there was some rift with the family that caused him not to see the girls of the Liddell family, uh, after the book was written. Mm-hmm. And while the popular rumor would be that it was because of some sort of untoward advances that he made towards Alice, uh, there's also a possibility that he could have had an affair with Mrs. Liddell, with the nanny, with the older girls, um, something probably along the way happened, Mm -hmm. but we're not sure. And it doesn't necessarily implicate Lewis Carroll as a pedophile. But it makes me wonder, though, Molly, if discerning parents out there who know this possible backstory to Lewis Carroll and his relationship with a real life Alice, I wonder if there's been some sort of um, small backlash towards sharing these books with children Mm -hmm. because of maybe these sexual undertones that they weren't aware of. Well, think about the most recent Alice in Wonderland that came out, the one directed by Tim Burton. I think that one was directed towards adults. Yes. I think that because people can see so much, you know, psychedelic grooviness, for lack of a better term, in Alice in Wonderland, that, you know, there is sort of a backlash against sharing them with Mm -hmm. children. But, um, and I think that that's why I liked this article so much is, you know, I remember reading that book and just thinking it was pretty cool, crazy book. And then when you find out all this backstory, it's just like, whoa. I mean, even when I was watching the play, it's, you know, it's impossible to be distracted because it involves acrobatics and the tea party. But every now and then you'll remember like, oh, yeah, this is supposed to be like very subversive and I'm not getting it or I am getting it. And it's creeping me out. <laughs> right. Um, and now listeners might be wondering at this point uh, why we're going on and on about 
Lewis Carroll when the question we're supposed to be talking about is whether or not there are feminist icons in children's lit. And I think this discussion is a really good example of how you might be able to take children's literature and really analyze it to the point that it might devalue the original text. And I think it might be a good starting place for us to really shift from Alice, who I don't know that we could call Alice a feminist icon. I mean, it's a fantastic book, but I, I don't know. Would you consider Alice a feminist icon, Molly? I, I see a lot of feminist elements in her. She, you know, she's on this journey by herself. Yes, she's very independent. She's independent. She's very clever. She makes a goal of becoming a queen and sets out to meet it. But isn't that a, a negative goal to have to become a queen? <laughs> well, now, see, that's the thing is, can you unpack it too much? As a kid, I was just like, oh, man, here's this spunky girl who's going through a crazy world. I want to have crazy adventures, too. Right. So, and especially when you're watching the play, which, as I said, involves all this acrobatics. Uh, our fan, Lindsay, who plays Alice, does all these cool tricks, circus tricks. She has circus training. I mean, when you see that, I would think if you were a little girl and saw that, you'd be like, man, that girl is awesome. Yeah, very strong, very powerful. But as you said, Kristen, we're going to move away from Alice because, you know, it's it's just been read into far too much, in my opinion. And it's as you said, it's hard to separate all the analysis from perhaps the text itself. So we want to talk about other favorites from our childhood literature reading days and whether the the girls and women we encountered within those books were, in fact, some sort of feminist role models. You know, did they help make us the girls who had grew up to be stuff mom never told you? Now, there was a study that Molly and I found by Manjari Singh called Gender Issues in Children's Literature. And it, it basically theorizes that there is a, a general gender bias in the language, content, and illustrations in a large number of children's books because, first of all, uh, she says that a majority of the books are dominated by male figures. Um, for instance, there was an analysis in 1995 of titles of children's books that found male names represented nearly twice as often as female names. And then you often have the characterizations of boys as being more strong, adventurous, independent, and capable, while girls are the sweeter, naive, conforming, and more dependent characters. So seeing this study, Molly and I kind of wanted to uh, reverse a little bit and think about the the girls that we read growing up and um, also with contemporary children's books today, whether or not there's been more of an effort to uh, alleviate that gender bias, supposed <laughs> gender bias. And we ran across then an article, a recent article in the Guardian newspaper. It was written by a mom who has a young son and a young daughter, and she was trying to, she basically tested out feminist children's books on her kids. Right. She noticed that her boy was getting a little too stereotypically boyish, didn't want to invite girls to his birthday party, and the girl was turning into, you know, pink princess extraordinaire. And so she was like, what can I read them that will subvert all these things that they must be subconsciously picking up somewhere? So uh, the article is her adventure through what she calls feminist books for five-year-olds. And she has pretty mixed success. She reads the kids Pippi Longstocking. Uh, she reads them a coloring book called Girls Are Not Chicks, which included one line, when she stopped chasing the dangling carrot of conventional femininity, she was finally able to savor being a woman. And as a five-year-old girl, I know that I would have understood every word of that and probably... <laughs> 
taken it to heart. All I can hope is that since that was a coloring book, you got to color a carrot. Because, I mean, that was all I could cling to in that sentence. And I'm, you know, in my 20s. <laughs> but um, she also reads the books Princess Smarty Pants, The Pirate Girl, which I have to uh, just plug features a girl named Molly, which is always plus in my book. And a book called Adventure Annie Goes to Work. And, you know, it, as you might imagine, when you read books that are kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, maybe preachy. It just, it doesn't work with kids. And she didn't even like all the messages. Like, let's take the pirate book. The male pirates get punished at the end. And as the woman points out, punishing the oppressor is not true feminism. It's just role reversal. Um, but the kids did, both the boy and the girl did like the pirate book because the pirate aspect appealed to the boy. Yeah. Um, and, and but- she was a, cr- a cool, like, heroine, it sounds mm-hmm. like. But, but. What kind of message do you send if you just, like, punish the guys at the end? Very true. And I thought it was funny, too, that with Pippi Longstocking, her daughter really loved the book. I remember Pippi Longstocking back in the day, and um, and I I thought she was great. Uh, But the boy couldn't, her her son couldn't care less. Yeah, he liked the monkey. And I also, I mean, basically after reading these five or six books, the only lessons she says that the kids really picked up was um, the existence of the term Ms. MS, which we have discussed at length in this podcast. Um, and also the idea that marriage is not everyone's idea of a fairy tale ending, which I think is a pretty cool lesson for a little kid because in the princess smarty pants books, um, you know, she runs off all the male suitors and it's like, eh, I'm just going to be happy by myself. So that brings up the next question then of, are we as parents or in my, my case, as an aunt with a young niece, uh, is there any value in going over and beyond to select maybe pro-feminist titles for our young children who probably are not going to understand terms like heteronormative? <laughs> our favorite term? Yes. You should write a, a children's book just called The Heteronormative Puppy or something <laughs> like that. Now, girls are not chicks, for example, might be... A little heavy handed um, in terms of pushing, you know, an agenda like you mentioned, Molly. But I but I do think there's something to be said for selecting or suggesting books for especially for younger girls and adolescents that do promote, um, if not feminism directly, positive themes for girls. And we found a site, um, a blog, actually, that listed her. She picked her top 20 books for younger girls. Right. This is Jen Robinson's book page is the name of the blog. Mm-hmm. And some of the 20 cool girls in children's literature that she calls out are, uh, let's see, Claudia from the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, Charlotte from Charlotte's Web, uh, Meg from A Wrinkle in Time, Hermione Granger from Harry Potter. Laura Her- Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie. And let me just say I devoured those books as a child. Yes, those are quite good. Joe March from Little Women. And she included uh, two women that we're about to talk about because we figured that they were two of the ones that had big impacts on us. So we picked them at random. You could easily do 10 podcasts on children's literature, but we're going to focus on three reading uh, heroes of our childhood. So two from Jen Robinson's list. Coming in at number one on her list was Anne of Green Gables. Coming in at number 11 on her list is Ramona Quimby. And then girls that did not make her list, but that Kristen and I have decided... Are well worth discussing the American Girls, 
Molly, Samantha, Kirsten, Felicity. Now, some of you are l- scratching your heads right now about why we're going to discuss American Girls. I will say that obviously the American Girl books aren't, don't necessarily hold a revered place in the canon of children's literature like Alice in Wonderland, but for today's girls, due to their popularity, I think that they're definitely worth a discussion because they were also books that Molly and I read and enjoyed for certain reasons. But to kick things off, let's start with, shall I call her the queen of children's lit, Molly? Anne of Green Gables? Oh, queen's such a hard title to put on just one lady from children's literature. It's true. Make your case. Why is she the queen? Well, maybe not kids lit, because I really didn't read Anne of Green Gables till I was probably 12. But before that, the PBS special miniseries, you know what I'm talking about, I do. Every time I was sick, I would even fake sick sometimes, just so that I could watch... And of Green Cables. I loved it. Um, but going back to your question, why would I say that she deserves the top spot? Well, first of all, there's just a huge catalog of Anne of Green Gables books, although they seem to kind of descend in quality, um, as a lot of series kind of do. But also, she's just such an icon. And I think a lot of, a lot of young women looked up to. Right. I liked, uh, we found this article from 2008 by Kate Bullock in the New York Times, and she points out that when the first, when the book first came out, the New York Times deemed its heroine, the talkative redheaded orphan Anne Shirley, to be altogether too queer. They did not like her at first, but now, as you said, she's pretty universally beloved. Um, and I think that, you know, if I'm not ready to give her the title queen, she's certainly, um, up there because she is, she goes her own way. I mean, when you're a kid, when you're a little girl, I think that that's sort of the best a book you can have as a girl who goes her own way. You know, she lived in kind of a weird fantasy world sometimes. Well, she was an orphan, Molly. She was an she orphan. She needed a fantasy world. She had a window friend. She overcame tremendous, you know, hardship. And she comes to this adopted family and they want a boy. Mm-hmm. And she proves that a girl is just as good as a boy. Right. So I do think that, you know, she's often described as sort of this early feminist icon in children's literature because you read it and you're like, yeah, I can go my own way. I can have hair that doesn't fit the norm. I can have an attitude that doesn't fit the norm and I'm going to be loved and, uh, you know, applauded all the same. But speaking of Lucy Maud Montgomery, Molly, why don't you share a little bit with us about her life? So I shall, Kristen. Uh, Ella Montgomery was born in 1874 uh, she had a very sad childhood. Her mother died very early in her life. Her father leaves her with her grandparents. Um, so she's this only child living with, you know, very elderly people who may not get her. She was essentially orphaned. True. Much like Anne. And she retreats into her imagination. She writes books. She wanders around Canada. Because if you go to Canada, well, she's associated with Canada. <laughs> Prince Edward Island, Molly. She's beloved by Canadians. And we know how many Canadian fans we have. So anyway, <laughs> fact about me, though, uh, my ultimate vacation destination when I was a child was Prince Edward Island. That was like going to the Bahamas for me. Not that I ever did it. I'm just saying like a dream. My dream car was an RV and my, my dream place to drive it would have been <laughs> Prince, Ever- <laughs> Prince Edward Island. That's the best fun fact we've gotten about you yet, Kristen. Someday your dream will come true. So now she took care of her grandparents as they aged. She taught as later Anne would also. And then she married a young reverend and moved off Prince Edward Island. 
and really tried to focus on her writing as she rose, as she um, brought up her children. And she got just a ton of rejections. She was not popular at first. Um, you know, she was making some money as a writer, not a lot. 1905, she writes Anne of Green Gables. It's rejected. And it's not until two years later that she dusts it off. And she's like, oh, I'm going to try again. She finally, she finally gets it published. And then she continues to write, go on to write 20 novels, many of them about Anne's later life. Um, but one sort of factor I liked about this biography that, that we got on Ella Montgomery is that they point out, you know, just how almost sounds weird to say, but almost how tragic her life was and how deeply she felt all these things that were going on about, you know, there was a war going on and her husband had problems and she had this very sad childhood. And I think that the later Anne books get really a lot of criticism very few people read them because you really just want the spunky girl. They kind of peter out. And as Anne grows, I mean, she marries. She wants all her friends to get married. Um, you know, she becomes very conservative in terms of social norms. So I think that that's probably why people might have trouble totally embracing Anne because she kind of becomes weird. I'm just going to quite say that. She becomes weird. She becomes weird. But I think that that is a reflection of Ella Montgomery's life. And I think that that's why you can't, as opposed to this article in The Guardian, all of a sudden just say, well, I'm only going to embrace like the rah-rah feminism books because life is hard. And that reflection in literature can be very valuable for a child. Yeah. And and that brings up an article that we found in The New York Times from 2000 that really points out that a lot of these children's books that we really hold near and dear have a lot of darker undertones that are reflected in the author's lives. I mean, it calls out the fact that Beatrix Potter in writing about Peter Rabbit was really writing about life and death. We have Hans Christian Andersen, who was broody and reclusive, and Louisa May Alcott, who romanticized the confusion of her own childhood in the self-portrait of Joe and Little Women. Right. You know, I mean, and, and you see the same thing, like we're talking with Ellen Montgomery, orphaned, Anna's orphaned. Those books that seem to strike a chord with children are the ones that do reflect the fact that life is hard, that maybe the girl doesn't always win in the end. And that's sort of the opposite of what the woman in The Guardian was looking for for her children. I mean, in girl or boy, I mean, I think the classic example of this would be um, Maurice Sedak's Where the Wild Things Are. I mean, it's a boy protagonist, but I mean, it's a very violent book about a very angry child. Mm-hmm. And, um, girl or boy, I don't, I don't feel like that just because there, there isn't a girl in the book. It doesn't, that it pushes some kind of gender agenda. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's pretty clear when you start digging into those books that we really identified with personally as children. Um, they were the ones that really, um, I don't know, they had the, had the, the darker undertones to them. For instance, I think this would be a good point to segue into number 11 on that uh, list we mentioned earlier, which are the Ramona Quimby books. Number 11 on that list, but number one in my heart. Yes. Molly and I, both huge fans of the Ramona books by Beverly Cleary. Ramona Quimby actually started off as a character in her Henry Higgins books, which were also fantastic. And then she sort of took on a life of her own and then spawned this eight-book series. And I don't know about you, Molly, but when I think of all of the young girl characters that I fantasized about in terms, you know, played 
as my imaginary play as a kid, read about, et cetera, et cetera, Ramona Quimby stands out in my mind as the number one girl I identified with. I just wanted to have her attitude. Like, do you remember when um, the lady told her the cat's got your tongue and she stuck out her tongue? Mm -hmm. Like, I could have never done that when I was five. I would have been like, oh, too rude, too rude. But I just loved that Ramona did it. Yeah. Well, I think it was just as a, as a kid, it was really, it was really great to read about this girl who, yes, has a, has a lot of pluck. And she was pretty funny in the descriptions. The Beverly Cleary writes are just so great, but there are also a lot of very painful, poignant moments in these books because life isn't perfect for the Quimby family at all. You have her dad who loses his job at some point and stays at home while he's looking for work and he's chain smoking all the time. And there's understandable tension between Mr. and Mrs. Quimby and Ramona overhears fights that they have. And then at one point, yeah, we were talking earlier and and, and you said how, um, how, how one of the points in those fights really got to you as a kid. Yeah, there's some moment, I forget which book it was, where um, the Quimby's are fighting and like the father swats the mother with a, a spatula or something like that. And it really affects Ramona hard. She's convinced that her world is going to end. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember thinking, oh, gosh, Ramona is in an abusive household. But um, yeah, I mean, just that, as you said, like that pluck in the midst of dark times it doesn't jump out as a feminist hero per se when you're reading it. But I think that that is what makes it so relatable and so valuable for little girls. And also the thing I liked about Ramona, she wasn't cute. Right. I mean, she's kind of grubby. Yeah. I mean, like if you think of, um, I think it's the cover of Ramona Quimby AJ where it's just like her weird face mm-hmm. and her weird hair. That's all like different links. She's yeah. Cause she has to have, uh, haircuts at home because they can't afford to, you know, pay for her to go, get a haircut elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, and I think that there's a movie coming out, and I think Ramona looks, like, actually kind of pretty, and I I kind of don't like it. I mean, that's a whole other issue about, like, reflections of beauty and to girls at a young <laughs> age, but I think that that plays a factor. I think one of the reasons I did like Ramona is I was like, oh, good, not a princess. Right. But I got to say, Molly, when I was reading all of these articles about, you know, feminist icons and children's lit, what we should be passing along to our girls, reinforcing these values for strong womanhood, et cetera, et cetera. And then I remembered Ramona. I mean, to me, the most, the more important thing that I would like to pass on to my niece isn't necessarily girls aren't chicks, you know, teaching her about, you know, just go for it, young girl. Don't even just blast through the glass ceiling. She doesn't know about that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's more important to pass along literature that um, takes kids seriously mm-hmm. and I don't know, gives them a chance to um, use their imagination, but also relate to things and be able to ask those questions that they might not want to ask about, you know, why their parents are fighting or why their dad's at home and can't find a job. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of those, all of those types of issues that there is no easy an- answer for. I think that those big things are more important in children's development than necessarily um, sussing out the, you know, <laughs> the differences between male and female psyches. <laughs> Although there were a lot of differences between Henry Higgins and Ramona Quimby. That's true. So on that note, Kristen, let's transition ever so briefly to the American Girl dolls. Um, when I was growing up, these girls came into being in the 19, 1986. Okay. And so I, I was there for the beginning of this. I remember when there were just three American girls. Now they're like... You're really dating yourself, Molly. 
That's fine. <laughs> because whenever I talk to my little cousins now who know about the spectacle that is an American Girl store, they don't understand what it was like to just get your catalog in the mail once a quarter. Getting that quarterly catalog was so exciting in my household. And you'd circle the things you'd want and you'd mail away from them. They was they were so weird because they weren't in stores. And now I would argue that maybe the American girls mean something different to a younger generation because it is like must consume all dolls, must go to the store and have a tea party with it's my g- doll. Yes. Which by the way I control. Which by the way I really want to do. Well I hope I'm invited, Molly. You can bring your American Girl doll. Yay. Molly and I both have the same American Girl doll. Side note, we had Samantha. Many people think I would have Molly because, as I noted earlier, I loved books with my name in them. That was my guess. But I feel that Molly's backstory was not as exciting to me as Samantha's was. But speaking of backstory... Because um, that's the whole reason we're bringing it up in a book podcast. Yeah, we should talk about the books. Because they've got... When it just started out, like you said, with the, the three girls, um, and this was the company was started by a woman named Pleasant Roland. And when it started out, there were three girls, and there were also the books that went along with the dolls. And that was half the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would go to, you know, I only had Samantha, but I would read all Felicity's books and Addie's books. Well, actually, I think Addie was kind of after my time. Uh, Molly's books. You get the drift. Well, <laughs> I, I had all, all the books. books. And you learned so much from them. They were both educational and things you could identify with. Because like Ramona, these were pretty spunky girls. Mm-hmm. Having adventures in hard times. Me and Samantha was also an orphan. Yes. But I will say to this day, I know what a petite four is, thanks to Samantha Parkington. Very true. Me too. Uh, but these books were written by Valerie Tripp. Many and, of them. Many of them. Not all of them. Yeah. A lot of them were written by, by Valerie Tripp. And we read an article about Trip, and she said the thing that she really wanted to drive home with those books was keeping them age appropriate. She felt like, you know, a, a lot of times girls, younger girls are sort of pushed from being girls straight into being women, you mm-hmm. know, and she wanted to give them something that was educational and that would get them reading and also allow them to enjoy their girlhood. And I think a great thing about the American Girl books were that all of them are set in different historical time periods and they would have these nifty little sidebars on some of the pages that would give you a backstory, historical backstory on whatever's going on at the time. Because, for instance, I remember with the Samantha books, there was some book about her grandpapa or something getting a horseless carriage that was and, a big deal. Uh, yeah and and so they had you know a sidebar on on the model t or something like I that i learned a lot about world war ii from the molly books oh yeah what's a victory garden i know because of molly mcintyre mm-hmm. so these are three random examples Kristen, picked from different time periods they're four different ages but these were three formative characters I'm going to group all the American girls as one character, but um, three characters that just really spoke to us as young girls. And I think that we've identified that the common theme is that they have hard circumstances that they've got to overcome, mm-hmm. or at least identifiable problems. Yes. They are plucky and clever about solving those problems. Yeah, they have to use their wits to get out of a jam. And what else can we say about them? Because I do think these are sort of feminist role models, but maybe not necessarily feminist with like all the strident militancy that sometimes the term implies. Well, I think that we could say, um, kind of like you mentioned when we were talking about Ramona, the stories have to do deal more with the girls' brains than their bodies, Hmm. you know, and it allows us to maybe, you know, teach these girls to value um, building strong characters rather than having to obsess over their faces. True. Um, 
And also, I think we need to call out if uh, if any of you guys are interested in learning more about more modern day um, books with feminist overtones for younger readers. Uh, Molly found the Amelia Bloomer Project, which is kind of a kind of an interesting blog you might want to check out. Yeah, what they do is every year they pick the best books that have come out in the previous year for everyone from birth to the age of 18 uh, that, that have good examples of female role models, people who are, are getting it done. And uh, they release about like 50 books every year. Mm-hmm. So you could you could occupy yourself for, for quite a while, which is the Amelia Bloomer list. And speaking of occupying yourself, the reason we did talk about literature today is we are again asking, as we did last year, for everyone's summer reading list. Yeah, because everyone loved that. We got lots of ideas about what to read, and we want to know what you're reading and what you read as a child that you think shaped your life in some demonstrable way. Right. Last year, people were reading a lot of Chuck Palahniuk, Neil Gaiman, and David Sedaris, etc. What are you reading this summer? Oh, and of course, the Twilight series. True. And Suki Stackhouse. Which inspired our Vampire Podcast. So we'll mm-hmm. love to see what you guys are doing because it may inspire yet another book podcast. Yes, send us your list. Or if you don't want to send us your email, if you want to share your reading list with everyone else, you should post it on our new Facebook page. Yes. Just search Stuff Mom Never Told You. It'll come up. Or you can do Facebook.com backslash Stuff Mom Never Told You. But if you'd like to email us, the email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to follow Molly and me during the week, you can hop on over to Twitter. We have a Twitter account there with lots of fun tweets. Our name is Momstuff Podcast. And then finally, you should check out our brand new blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You. And you can find that at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.